Well, we have a short reading for today as we come to a new book of the Bible. A new book of the Bible. Hmm. I think my goal is to preach the whole thing. Some of you won't make it, though. But by God's grace, I pray I can get there. We're going to be in 1 Timothy for the next six months. We're going to spend 45 minutes on the intro. And you're welcome. I cut it down. Should we read it? This is the word of the Lord for this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's one of Paul's phrases. Christ Jesus. By command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Happy birthday, church. Eight years of God's faithfulness, eight years of watching God uh, be pleased to flex his power, to show off his greatness and glory amongst the people who come to make church about God. I see the nods of fellow members who have been here from the beginning. Um, the church has changed a lot. I'm thankful at year eight for what hasn't changed. We are a, a convictional church, always have been and always will be. Uh, we did not start this church to figure out what you guys wanted in church. We actually didn't care. I never asked because I didn't think you guys were going to be a good source of information on the subject. <laughs> Nor did I think that what you would be getting if I gave you what you wanted was what you actually needed. What you need and what the world is desperate for and our area is desperate for as much as any other place for its own various reasons is a church about God. A church that's to God and for God, and through God, that he would get all the glory. And uh, by God's grace, for eight years, we've sought to do that, and we don't intend to change. That's what's not changed. This is a church where God is the main attraction. This is a church where we don't put the focus on the person that's up here, but on the content of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to change hearts. We have been believing God to plant a church that's ultimately about his glory, that when God's glory is made manifest in the church through the unapologetic preaching of his word and the unashamed adoration of his son, the unceasing prayers of a dependent people sent out on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ. God is pleased to move in the midst of that, and when he moves in the midst of that, there's something contagious about it. And we have seen that, have we not, church? We have seen God's faithfulness in that way, and, and yet I would say at the same time that we are not a perfect church. There are so many things, and I, I, I've said this from time to time, but people must look at times and think, this is exactly how Pastor Scott wants it. It's not at all how I want it in some ways. 
convictionally, it has to be the way it is in some ways, but there are definitely things about our church that's not a perfect church, but it's a good church, and it's a God church, and we pray uh, by God's grace it would continue to go forward and be strengthened as we surrender to the word of God. And so we're going to, on that same subject of not being a perfect church, we're going to start a new series and a new year of ministry The series titled The Dearest Place on Earth. That's going to be the series title. The Dearest Place on Earth. If you're thinking Disneyland, that's not not what we're talking about. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, the great English preacher of the 1800s, once said this. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you feel almost glad that you haven't. If I had never joined a church till I had found the one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. And all of God's humble people would say, still imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. This is the place we come. This is the place we cancel plans so we can be here. In the midst of the COVID season, One of my prayers has been, because it has hit me so hard, that the church would become more dear to you. And I think one of the testimonies that I've heard so often is that it has become more dear to you. The sweetness of seeing new members that are really old members, that after six months felt like new members, seeing their faces again, seeing precious people that you worshiped with for years that now for what seemed like an eternity you weren't together, getting to worship in person again and then in God's providence over the last year our church has essentially doubled in size. And so while it's so awesome to be with the saints of old, we have in a sense a brand new church in so many ways operating on a lot of the assumptions of what you see about doxa on a Sunday or what you might read on the website or what you might understand from a friend about who doxa is, but that won't be enough. No, friends, not in our day. That won't be enough to clarify who we are to be and what we are supposed to do as a church because many of you are coming from a church situation in which people were confused about what the church was supposed to be and what the church was supposed to do. That is a heartbreaking reality. We are not clear on what it is that the church is here for. And so you have churches that are pursuing, and this is the favorite of the church of America today, is the church of pragmatism, which is an exhausting battle to keep figuring out why people are moving from church to church, get ahead of those desires, and create a place where you're fueling, where you're meeting those needs, those desires that are leading people to go to other churches. Friends, that is, number one, that is stressful for the church to keep up with all of that. And number two, you will find yourself, and I say this to our shame, on the right side of history too many times. What I mean by that is when you play the pragmatic game and you try to figure out why people are moving and what's popular in the church and what's attracting people, you get a church where you have something other than the main thing at the forefront. You get social justice church. You get critical theory church. You get church that's about politics. Now, I'm not saying that we don't weigh in to our politics with our theology, but a church that is dominant in their politics, that's the way we'll corner the market as people are sifting and shifting. We'll make it about politics. That's how we'll get them in here. That is a problem. 
That may be offensive. But I'm not here to please you. I am not here to coddle you. I am here to preach the word of God. And I'm here to answer this question that we need. And hopefully what this does is in answering the question, who is the church? What are we supposed to be and do? Are we supposed to look like the world? Are we supposed to act like another entity in the world? Uh, what is it that the church is supposed to be and do? Maybe in answering that question, you don't like the answer at all. And that would actually be fine because then you would have the clarity about what we're after as a church. And maybe though some of you will find that they have clarity now at DOXA for what DOXA is to be and what DOXA is to do. And so I want to show you this, that ultimately the question of what the church is supposed to be and do is as simple as saying the church is supposed to be biblical. It's supposed to be biblical. And so if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy. And uh, the title of the message this morning is Church As It Should Be. Church As It Should Be. This letter is for a church, 1 Timothy, looking to understand its role in a doctrinally confused, ideologically crazy, high-pressure, ever-shifting culture. 1 Timothy provides a biblical worldview for today's confused church member. Are you confused? Do you know why you're here? Do you know why you'd be here versus another place? 1 Timothy provides a biblical worldview for today's confused church member and emphasizes that a faithful church, by definition, is a biblical one. In order to get into 1 Timothy in verses 1 and 2, I want to give you a kind of a broad overview of the book today. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, sums up the main idea for the book, the main key verses that explain the entire rest of the book. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, says, I'm writing, excuse me, yes, verse 14b, I am writing these things to you so that, here's why he's writing, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. This is God's house, y'all. He has a way he wants you to behave in God's house, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And he goes on to share this incredible song about the gospel about the work of Jesus. And so suffice it to say, as we look at 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, we come up with a sense of a big idea for why Timothy was written. What are we getting after as we study this book? What are we looking at here? And here's why it was written. I'm giving you today a big idea on the whole book, right? Big idea, whole book. If you'd like to write it down, we will be referencing it often. 1 Timothy was written to teach the proper ordering and conduct in the church, to reveal the mystery of Christ in the gospel most accurately, effectively, and beautifully. First Timothy was written to teach the proper ordering and conduct in the church Listen to this, to reveal the mystery of Christ in the gospel most accurately, effectively, and beautifully. And I will add this, based not on what the world will receive, but what on Christ wants perceived. The church is worried about facing itself out so that the world will receive it. Jesus has no interest in facing ourselves out as the world will receive us, but rather as Jesus wants us to be perceived. We don't operate based on trying to get the world to like us. That is a Christian fallacy. 
We operate in such a way, not going, the world's going to like us more, the world's going to like us more, the world's going to like us more, but what does Jesus Christ want perceived by the world as we gather? Do you see the difference? I'm not usually passionate, but... If you're new, this is abnormal. What I think First Timothy is going to show us is that proper church life is actually not like a negligible thing. Proper church life is actually so critical. What Paul's going to say to Timothy is it's actually a necessary part of the administration of the mystery of Christ in the gospel to the watching world. The way that we behave is showing the world something. Let me give you a little background of the book. This is written in AD 64. Paul planted this church in Ephesus. You remember that in the book of Acts? And no? Okay, great. That's another book of the Bible. A little bit before 1 Timothy. He planted it. He left Priscilla and Aquila there for a time before returning on a later missionary journey and staying for how many years? Three years in Ephesus, roughly A.D. 53 to A.D. 56, where he laid down a solid foundation for the church. Uh, He does mention in Acts 20, though, that the elders are to beware of some that will come in from among themselves, wolves not sparing the flock, Acts chapter 20 says. And lo and behold, in the span of about 10 years, if we fast forward from Paul's three years spent getting the church off the ground and getting it solidified in Ephesus, a major important city, fast forward roughly 10 years, roughly the age of our church, and by 10 years later, there is need to address some things. Paul had gotten word that the church in Ephesus was disrupted by leaders who were using the Bible, listen to this, there's a way to do this, using the Bible unbiblically. In fact, I'm going to refer to that phrase a lot. Just because you use the Bible doesn't mean you're biblical. I need that phrase to get into your head because I think it's pretty important to Paul. Using the Bible unbiblically is a problem. Chapter 1, we're going to see Paul talking to Timothy about those who were using the law unlawfully. They were missing the point of the law. They were speculating about things and genealogies and controversies and Genesis instead of recognizing that the law was meant to point to our sin and bring us to an end of ourselves and ultimately lead us to the one who's come to die for sin and rise for sinners so that we would have no other hope of salvation in any other name other than the name of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who lived, died, rose, ascended for you. So that anyone, anyone from any walk or background of life, turning from their sin, putting their faith in Jesus, you can have a new life in Jesus Christ. You can have all your sin forgiven. You can be transformed from the inside. You can walk in newness of life. Eternal life begins for you upon your repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. And so Paul sees these bad beliefs leading to bad behavior in the church. And who does Paul send? He sends 35-year-old Timothy. Took us eight years, y'all, but we got there. I'm finally that old. Amen, Ted says. Some faithful brothers that have put up with a lot. My joke was that uh, for enduring my 20s, I owe you my 60s. (laughs) So Paul sends Timothy to restore order in Ephesus. And this is Paul's manifesto to him. What we're going to read is, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to correct what's been going on in the church in Ephesus. And, And so we look at the intro, and what's so funny about the intro is you read the intro, and it's like we blazed right past the intro. Paul, Timothy, ding, dong, bing, boom. Okay, let's go to the next verse. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't sleep on the intro, yo. Don't you do that. The intro is your gateway into the glories of the letter. Don't miss any words. Don't miss what Paul leaves out. Don't miss what Paul puts in. He's hinting, he's showing, he's revealing, he's foreshadowing. He's letting you know exactly where he wants to go. 
No, it's essential that we get this. These slight variations are shedding light on what Paul wants to tell Timothy, or here's what I'm going to say, what Paul thinks a church should be. And so we're going to walk through that, and we're going to use that idea, a church to become as it should be. How do we, how do we operate? If we're going to become as it should be here, we won't ever do it perfectly, but we ought to be in pursuit of it. Here's the first thing Paul gives us, a church, and I pray that we would share this hunger to be a church as it should be. Amen? We have to be. A church as it should be, number one, receives God's design for the church authoritatively. Receives God's design for the church authoritatively. From Paul, church order, church conduct isn't free to be made up by pastors or church people. feel like that's worthy of an amen. Because it's easy for us to think we can mess with it. It's open for debate. There's leniency. There's a lot of freedom in how that we operate it. In some sense, that's true. But when God gives us his word, and Paul lays it out clearly, what he lays out in 1 Timothy is not up for de debate. It's not suggestive. It's not moldable by Plato. And the means by which Paul gives us and says, hey, here's what you need to walk in as a church. We don't look at those and go, okay, we'll apply those, but you know what? We'll judge them by success. If it's successful in getting more people in the doors, we'll deem it as God's at work. Loved ones, we cannot judge the effectiveness of how we are ordered and what our conduct is in the church by how successful it is instead of the rod and the rule of Scripture. Scripture's the key. Scripture always has to be the way that we measure these things. And so God's design for the church is articulated by the Apostle Paul is meant to be taken authoritatively, not interpretively, and it will explain a lot of how he introduces himself. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. We know, of course, that apostles mean sent one. It means ambassador who is sent with a mission and message on behalf of and in the authority of the one who sent him. But Paul himself is a capital A apostle. That is commissioned, called, and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish his work. He is one who is a witness of the risen Christ in his glory. He is one who as an apostle is one last of all. And I think one of the reasons, and although this is a bit of a speculation, I will throw it out there that Paul loved the term Christ Jesus. And if you think about it, that's exactly how Paul witnessed Jesus Christ in all of his glory. See, he was, he's Jesus the Christ, but Paul witnessed and saw the resurrected Jesus in all his glory on the way to Damascus, and upon that experience called him Christ Jesus. He saw the fullness of Christ's glory and so far he was able, so glorious he went blind, right? He was blinded in the process. This is an apostle who is uniquely gifted by the Spirit to impart divine, thus saith the Lord, revelation. And he was a critical piece of the foundation of the church laid by the apostles and the prophets. And Paul is Christ's ambassador, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is Christ's apostle. Notice he says this, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Which should stand out to use the word command. In other words, different introductions from Paul. Paul tends to use different language. Uh, maybe one of the more common ones is Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ, you would see in other books that he's written, by the will of God. Today, it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and the Lord and of Jesus Christ, our hope. 
This word command here is the word for a royal commandment as if it were coming from a king, which is not negotiable, it's not suggestive, it's that Timothy, as a faithful shepherd, should be marked by carrying out these kingly orders. And it's that you, as the people of God, would be marked by receiving and submitting in obedience to that which we find in the book of 1 Timothy. Now, as we approach Paul's words here and we continue to unpack this, we get a sense for some things that were going on in the church. In, in Later in chapter 1, around verse 18, Paul makes known of the reality that he actually had to remove two of, and we're not exactly sure if they were elder pastors or if they were in a significant role of leadership, but Paul actually had to remove two teachers who were teaching the Bible erroneously and had made shipwreck of their faith, namely Hymenaeus and Alexander. So he had to go and do that, and there were likely others who were causing issues in the church, preaching things that weren't biblical, and one of the indications Paul gives us in the introduction as to something he wants to make crystal clear to the church is the way he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command, kingly command, thus saith the Lord, command of God, our Savior, he says. We don't know for sure, but evidently there was something going on, a message that was being given to the Ephesian church that was separating God, the Father, and Jesus as Savior. Some version of, perhaps the way we would articulate it in our day, is that notion that the God of the Old Testament is the really mean God. He's grumpy and upset, but Jesus He's the nice God, and he's for salvation, and he's for saving people. And this is like, no, no, no. God the Father is described as God our Savior. Gets out a little bit as well the point of the church. The church is to conduct itself and order itself in a way that most accurately, effectively, and beautifully puts on display the mystery of Christ in the gospel. Like the church needs to exist to be about the gospel, to be about preaching salvation, to be about what God has done. God, our Savior, turns out, y'all, he's the master planner of the salvation we enjoy from sin. That's what he wants us to know. A phrase here that appears only in the pastoral epistles, interestingly enough. A phrase here derived from the Old Testament to show the link there, to show that there was some disconnect between what the preachers and teachers that were problematic in the church were teaching and what Paul wanted to make clear. In fact, if you just follow me for a second, you'll understand that Paul has this burden to explain that God is our Savior. Look at me, or look at um, 1 Timothy 2.4 with me. He says it like this. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul wants us to know that. Listen, loved one, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, if you don't know God as Savior, Paul wants you to know that God's heart is to save you. He is speaking to the heart of every individual, whether you're listening online or you're listening here. God's heart is for your salvation. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Look at verse 4, chapter 4, verse 16. The context is that he must persist in these things, the public reading of Scripture, preaching and teaching. For by so doing, you will save 
both yourself and your heroes. When I think of the very purpose of the letter being that the way we organize, the way we conduct ourselves is intentionally organized by the Lord that we might most accurately, clearly, beautifully, effectively testify to the mystery of God saving sinners through Jesus Christ. This is why the church exists. This is the drum we beat forever. And here's what happens, right? It's like, yes, this is the drum we beat. This is the drum that we beat in the church. But then other things come to the forefront and we take up that. And it's like, well, we still beat that drum. But listen, when it's the second drum, it's in the wrong place. The hard thing is to be, people go, how come you preach the gospel every single week? Because you need it every single week. Because the world is going off on all these little tangents and rabbit trails and all these whatever's new, whatever's popular, and there's that church. He's still angry about it, it sounds like. No, 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 I love you guys. I'm passionate about Jesus. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to get saved from your sins. That's what we preach. That's what the church should do. We have to stay on that and make it the drum we pound, the main one forever. For as long as God gives us breath, we are a place of salvation from sin. We are a place of salvation, that you're going to hear about salvation, that you are sinners. You, if not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You you are hopelessly lost. You cannot save yourself, but you will try through a myriad of good personisms and religiosity. You're going to try to get straight A's and be a Cub Scout and cross your heart and hope to die Pledge of Allegiance. (laughs) Whatever it is you're going to do, and all of it, all of it is worthless. You are a sinner. You're going to die and stand before a holy God. Your sin is going to be loaded in your thoughts that are ungodly, your words that are ungodly, your motives that are ungodly, your deeds that are ungodly. You don't determine that measuring rod by which you will be judged. The law of God does. It's written on your heart. Certainly you know, but perhaps you're too prideful to see in all the ways that you've had to suppress the truth of God in your unrighteousness that there is a God. He has made you. And here's the thing, despite the way that you have pressed him off, he's in pursuit of you. And he loves you. And because you couldn't save yourself and because someone can't step in to save you, mom and dad's faith can't save you, brother can't take a pitch for you and you get saved, you needed the spotless, eternal son of God to take on human flesh. That is the only way you could be saved. That's how egregious your sin is, but this is how good God is. He loved you so much, he sent his only son to take on human flesh, assume human form, and walk in perfect obedience to all the standards you were unrighteously disobedient to. He lived and he died as a traitor, as a blasphemer, so said the Jews, proclaiming to be God. He gave up his spirit on the cross where he was nailed to be tortured to suffocate to death on your behalf fully, but that wasn't even the worst part, fully absorbing the wrath of God, deserving the sins of all who would ever believe in Jesus Christ, and on the third day he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death so that you could be set free and never have another shameful thought about your past because it is covered past, present, future sin, all of it by the work of Jesus. That's how glorious it is. And he'll give it to you as a free gift. He'll just give it to you. You trust in Jesus. You turn from your sin. You trust in Jesus Christ. That's why he says, God, our Savior, he was the master planner of salvation, but our hope is in Jesus. See, God is a Savior. He designed the plan and sent his son. His son brought it to pass in his death and resurrection, and now he is our hope. And as sure as the tomb is empty, as sure as our hope is strong, and he is certainly seated at the right hand of God, interceding for those who trust in him. Now, when you think about it, it's like, man, why take such pains to say this to Timothy? You ever think about that? 
Like this is a formal thing. Oh, it's just formality. It's formalities. You got to say that. But he's saying it uniquely here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. How many think Timothy didn't know Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus? By command of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. Like he's got a pretty, why take such pains to establish his apostleship like this? Well, listen, he needed to strengthen Timothy's hand to stand strong. A church to become as it should be needs to receive God's word for the church, God's design for the church authoritatively. So as we sit under the word of God, here's how we apply that. We actually do what it says. We don't pick and choose. Like, hey, I'll take 1 Timothy 1, I'll skip the end of 1 Timothy 2. Wink, wink. Happening all over the place. This is a problem. And then I'm seen as the mean guy for saying, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, it's right there in the text. Are we going to rally? Is unity going to be around truth or around feelings? Are, are you thinking that this is the way I personally like it, so that's how we're doing it here? Or do you think I like to be firm in conviction, or do you think I'm bound by the Lord to preach what's here? So a church to become as it should be receives God's design authoritatively, but then number two, rallies behind legitimate leadership. The church, when it's going to see an overhaul, see some things change, or by God's grace, see some things endure, they're going to have to rally behind legitimate leadership. You're going to have to help Timothy, he's saying. Hey, church, I need you to stand behind Timothy as he engages in this. You, you think this is going to go well for him? You think this is going to be easy to do? He goes, church, you need to support Timothy. He's the legitimate leader. Notice who this is written to. To Timothy. His name means one who honors God. Isn't that awesome? And that name was given to him by his mother and his grandmother. And I always mix it up because Eunice sounds like a grandma name. Sorry for that generation, but it does. It's a grandma name. But think about this. Eunice, that's a grandma name, but it's the mom. Okay, you just have to do that. Then you'll never forget. Eunice, it's a grandma name, but it's the mom. By Eunice, Timothy's mom, and Lois, Lois is for sure mom, right? You're like, no! Lois is grandma, Eunice is mom. Go figure, it's backwards, isn't it? Come on, tell me it's backwards. Come on, you believe that as well. Eunice's mom, not grandma. Timothy's dad was likely an unbeliever. He was a Greek. Mom was a Jew. Eunice was a Jew, come to faith in Christ. And they had, according to 2 Timothy 3.15, caused Timothy to be acquainted with the sacred writings, which, interestingly, the sacred writings being the scriptures, which will make you, too, wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, according to 2 Timothy 3.15. So these ladies gave him a name that they prayed by God's grace one day he would grow into. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that what you do with your kids? You give them a name, you're like, by God's grace, I pray that one day you will become what we're calling you today. One who honors God. And I am going to open the scriptures, and you know how, they, how these two faithful ladies, think about this, ladies. Your sons could be future Timothys. And so often it's like, man, what, do I, what am I going to do with my life? What, think about the significant impact of Eunice. Not grandma, mom who poured the scriptures into her son. And when Paul meets Timothy in Lystra, which is where they meet, <laughs> Paul says that Timothy had a faith, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that not only mirrors his mother and grandmother, but his sure, Paul is sure, dwells in Timothy as well. Timothy met, Paul met Timothy in Lystra, became his protege, his disciple. This was the guy that Paul poured his life into. This is protege number one. We see all these awesome passages in scripture about this partnership. Paul meets Timothy, gets saved in his teens, and brings him along for 20 years. According to Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, here's how Paul describes Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You're getting the best. 
Verse 22 says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. I was a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. First Corinthians 4, verse 16, we just preached this book. Here's what Paul says. He says, I urge you then, speaking to the church, Paul speaking to the church. He says, I urge you then, be imitators of me, he says. And then he goes on to say, that is why I sent you Timothy. What an awesome thing. How hard it is to build disciples like that. Paul saw Timothy as a disciple, as his protege, from a teen to about 35 years old when he's receiving the letter of 1 Timothy. In that time with Paul, he had come to Athens in Acts 18. He was sent as an emissary to Macedonia in Acts 19. He was there when the collections were taken to Jerusalem. He was with Paul in Corinth when he went to Rome. Timothy was Paul's emissary to Corinth. He was with Paul when he wrote 2 Corinthians. He was sent to see how things were going in Thessalonica, and he was with Paul when he wrote the letter to the Thessalonian church. He was with Paul in his time of prison, and the most important thing that Paul could say about Timothy is what he in fact says right here, that he's, it's to Timothy, my true child in the faith. What a compliment. And what confidence for you, church. Rally behind this man. He is my true child in the faith. The word child here is a birth word. Paul birthed this one. It's so interesting with Paul. It's not only, so sometimes we get confused in, in discipleship, and this has really struck out, uh, stood out for me, this idea of um, um, we want to make him like Jesus, want to make him like Jesus, want to make him like Jesus, but Paul was telling everyone to be an imitator of me as I am of Christ, and then Paul was saying, Timothy's just like me. So it's, 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 it's an interesting thing because what that actually is saying in an awesome sense is that Timothy was, is, was like a Paul clone. And you go, Why, well, what, what's good about that? Well, I think it raises the bar for Paul as the leader to go, man, I need to get to a place in my own life by God's grace where the pursuit of holiness is so fervent, you can just copy me and get out there and you'll be faithful to Jesus. We don't have that kind of Christianity here. We want mentors, but we don't want holiness that bad. Give me another mentor to commiserate with me, but no, 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 I don't want to pursue holiness like that. Paul saw that come to fruition with Timothy, my true child, begot him in the faith. True is the idea of legitimate, genuine. That's where the word comes in the point. This is my true child in the faith, both in the genuineness of his own faith. We need pastors who are Christian. We need pastors who are Christian. Timothy is legit. He's a legit Christian. You can trust him. Paul trusts him wholeheartedly. His faith is genuine, but that's not the only thing he's getting at there. He's also saying this guy is legit in the faith, the faith. He's, he has a grasp of that faith, the Christian faith, the doctrines of the Christian faith. Timothy has it. That which has been once for all delivered to the saints, Timothy, he has it. He's a believer, and he holds fast to the Christian faith. Timothy is true to form, work with him, come under him, come alongside him. All this is so important because some in the church are going to resist the efforts made, and the church needed to come alongside Timothy in this reform. To champion, to encourage, to believe, to not be fearful as the world tries to creep in on the church. Come behind your leader. That's what he tells the church in Ephesus to do. And then he finishes in this interesting way. A church to become as it should be relies on God's abundant assistance. A church to become as it should be receives God's design for the church authoritatively. A church as it should be rallies behind legitimate leadership. It's what the church needs to do. 
It needs to open the word of God. The preacher needs to proclaim it as it is. And the church needs to be like, we're in it to make this happen by God's grace. We champion it. We support it. Praise God for you, pastor. Keep going. And then you're going to need strength to get it done. So he, he says we need to rally or we need to rely on God's abundant assistance, number three. Everybody knows change is hard. Everybody knows change is hard. Change in a church is really hard. You change the times of the church, half the church isn't there. You change in a way that makes the church seem more tight about stuff. A little bit too much starch in the collar. A little bit too harsh, whatever it may be. If that's what the Lord has, there can be all kinds of different, there can be resistance, there can be people that don't believe the theology. And so Paul gives this salutation, but we're used to Paul saying, grace and peace, aren't we? Look at it. Does it say grace and peace? Well, it does. He popped another word in there, didn't he? Whoops. We know no word in the whole Bible is a whoops. Look at it. Grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is how Paul greets every church. Grace, in this sense, in the continuing, enabling, and perfecting sense. Peace, meaning harmony with God, tranquility of soul. This is Paul telling Timothy to go forward, and he's He's wishing him on with God's grace and peace, but the unusual extra here is mercy. This isn't normally in Paul's greetings, but it does normally convey the idea of compassion or mercy to the needy. So in grace, you've got this empowering grace. You need grace, not in the saving sense, but in the empowering sense to do what God's called you to do. God empowers you by his grace to go forward. Peace is, hey, when everyone looks at you and thinks you're a complete nut, you're going to need some tranquility of soul, and I pray that the Lord supplies that, that the circumstances don't so mess you up that you can't stay focused on what the Lord's given you to do and have peace in your heart that you're being faithful to him and that nothing else matters. But he gives this word mercy. Why add this word? Well, a couple of factors. Probably Timothy's Jewish background would have been a part of this, I think that plays into it, but I want to say it most specifically as I'm looking at this letter, it's speaking into the road ahead and how difficult is going to be and Paul adds an extra word because Timothy needs it. He needs, yes, he needs God's enabling grace, yes, he needs tranquility of soul, but he also needs help when he feels helpless. The word mercy, when it's translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, if you were to say the same word in the Old Testament, it's translated into the Greek, into the Septuagint translation, is the word hesed in the Greek. It's loving kindness. But interesting, the word hesed is used multiple times in the Psalms with the idea of help in time of need. Help to the helpless, help for those who cannot help themselves. Timothy needed not just strength and enabling, but he needed help for him in his helplessness when it was hard, when it was difficult, when the ebbs and flows of the tide would come and go, when they're shifting and sifting in the church, when the church balloons up and when the church shrinks down because he's trying to be faithful, he needs help in his helplessness. Because he needs to be faithful. And he needs that help from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord to right the ship. What do we see? Here's the big picture. You ready? What does he need to right the ship of? Well, in chapter 1, he needs to correct Teachers that were using the law unlawfully and getting into arguments and speculations. In chapter 2, they needed to learn how to pray and stop arguing about things that don't matter. You don't pray and you should pray. 
Later in chapter 2, they needed to stop, ha stop having women that were preaching in the church. And men, women needed to have roles that were going to honor God in the way God designed them to be. And men were to have roles that were to honor God in the way God designed them to be. Oof, oof. Chapter 3, he goes, you need a proper leadership as well. And here's how you establish that. All the characteristics of leadership in the church. Chapter 4, you're using the Bible unbiblically and saying things like marriage and eating certain types of foods are ungodly when God created everything and is good if you give him thanks for it. It's made holy. Then he addresses widows. Some were young widows that were cashing in on a system that really wasn't for them. They were bringing shame on the church. There's addressing of elders, the seriousness of their role, the seriousness of an accusation against an elder, how it's to be done biblically. And then they address masters and they address money. And false teachers were into money. They liked money. They wanted money. And Paul says to watch out for that love of money. And then finally, Paul says, you need to guard what has been entrusted to you, Timothy. Guard it. The world is getting... It's, it's time to stand. Like weak, wimpy, sugared, watered down, sugar-coated. It's going to get so exposed in this next season. So I'm sorry if I sound mean, but I am fired up and all over my dead body. And if you want to rally behind, we'll go. We will go and we will stand firm on the word of God and I will press you on these things because I love you, but don't take the fired up as anything other than I love you and I'm fired up. And let's, by God's grace, be the kind of church we're supposed to be. Okay? I'm not trying to call out other churches and what they're doing. Oh, we're mean to other churches. Hey, listen, if the shoe fits, wear it. If someone wants to come to me and go, hey, there's something in the word that you're not doing, I better repent of that instead of feeling sorry for myself like I'm being judged by that. We're not going to do it perfectly. We're going to try to do it humbly. We're going to have to be bold. And we're going to have to stick fast to the word of God and not get tired of the gospel. Not get tired of salvation being the drum that we bang. And recognizing that the way we organize ourselves, the way we conduct ourselves, the priorities we have are intended to put on display what Christ wants perceived about the mystery of Christ and the gospel who's come to save sinners of whom Paul would say he's the foremost. May he be on display in this church, both now and into the future. Let's continue in worship.